Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a murder took place in St. Augustine on March 2, 1800. The way court proceedings worked in uh, a Spanish colony in the colonial period, they were almost more like a police investigation than a trial. We'll discuss 19th century property surveys in Florida. When Florida became a U.S. territory, it became obvious that massive surveys needed to be conducted in order to parcel up this land for sale. And talk about the Central Florida Navy League. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On March 2nd, 1800, two men had an altercation in downtown St. Augustine that resulted in one of the men's death. Both men were slaves. Jim Cusick is curator of the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida. I've been researching criminal court cases from the colonial period for a while, and I've looked at slanders, I've actually looked at a child abuse case, I've looked at a number of murders, and this one was very interesting to me. It occurred on Avila Street. Uh, people who have been to St. Augustine may know that Avalay Street is often promoted as being the oldest street in the town. That's true, along with Charlotte Street, which is right next to it. And uh, on that Sunday, around 5 p.m., uh, the shops along Avalay's were closed. Uh, there was a tailor shop on the street, and the apprentices from that uh, tailor shop were hanging out on the corner. One happened to be a free black uh, named Jorge Fish, who was about 16 years old. The other was a, uh, a uh, enslaved young man, 20 years old, Marcelino Sanchez. Uh, and with them was another uh, enslaved young man, 19-year-old Juan Segui, who worked at the bakery just a couple doors down. And with them was yet another slave, uh, Benjamin, uh, who uh, was owned by a, a widow in the area. Um, they were talking, and as they were talking, uh, another slave uh, walked down the street. Uh, he was trained as a cobbler. He was also known to the same group of uh, young men. Uh, he nodded to them. He continued down the street. And as he passed, uh, Benjamin uh, broke off from the group, took off his shoes and threw them up against the door of the tailor shop, took off his hat, threw it through the window, the open window of the tailor shop, took off after uh, this other slave, Juan Carlos, grabbed his hat and got into a fight with him. What seemed to be a fairly bizarre set of circumstances, or maybe just some sort of teasing or something going on. There were women down the end of the street, one a free black woman who uh, had a shop down there, an um, elderly slave woman, actually the grandmother of Juan, and they tried to break the fight up. The men uh, would not relent. 
they disappeared around the corner, went into the courtyard of a, of a uh, building, started to fight. Uh, Juan Carlos got the worst of it. He was uh, very bloodied and beaten up. And as uh, a crowd gathered and Benjamin turned away from him, uh, he suddenly pulled out a knife and he stabbed Benjamin in the back. Uh, the wound turned out to be fatal. Uh, and shortly after, a soldier uh, turned up. Uh, there was a great deal of commotion and shouting and put Juan Carlos under arrest. Juan Carlos was put on trial, but it was not the formula modern audiences are familiar with from programs like Law and Order, where there is a murder, a police investigation, an arrest, and a trial. The way court proceedings worked in uh, a Spanish colony in the colonial period, they were almost more like a police investigation than a trial. Uh, there was no courtroom, there was no judge, there was no witness stand. Everything was done by deposition. Uh, the uh, auditor general, who was uh, Don Jose de Ortega, would interview witnesses, uh, the accused, uh, experts on testimony. They would take it, the notary would take down all of their testimony. It would be compiled in a big file. Um, and then that file would be turned over to the governor, in this case, Henry White, who acted as magistrate, and he would have to make a ruling and a sentence. Probably the biggest difference at the time period is that uh, the uh, auditor, Don Ortega, and the notary, they didn't, uh, unlike modern lawyers who kind of have all the papers before they go into a trial and have read the testimony and read the police reports and are working out uh, you know, their case and how they're going to present it or how they're going to defend it, uh, these two men had no idea what was going to come up in testimony. I mean, they were learning things as they went along, which is why I said it's almost more like a police investigation than a court case. And they would call witnesses back. They actually, there was actually a, a procedure for witnesses to confront each other if their testimony conflicted. The accused could confront witnesses. Um, and all of these things happened in this particular case. Juan Carlos was quickly disowned by the Panton Leslie Company to avoid a lawsuit from the owner of Benjamin, the slave who was killed. When it was discovered that Juan Carlos was less than 21 years old, a guardian and defense attorney was appointed for him. At face value, this murder could have been seen as a case of self-defense, but Cusick says that some of the evidence pointed toward premeditation. It was a very complicated case. Uh, it seemed like it should have been an open and shut case for maybe manslaughter someone acting in a moment of passion. As they began to interview the witnesses, and all the witnesses in this case were either free blacks or enslaved men and women. This happened completely within the community of color, both free and slave. Uh, and as they w uh, began to talk to witnesses, witnesses said that this had been going on now for a month. Uh, that, uh, that Juan Carlos suspected that Benjamin was carrying on an affair with his wife um, and that he had been voicing this suspicion uh, for uh, a, a long period of time uh, and had in fact at one point uh, found a hat and a pair of shoes in his house belonging to a man uh, which he thought were Benjamin's and he actually went down to the tailor's shop one day, demanded of the apprentices there if they could identify them. Everybody in there actually knew that they were Benjamins but wouldn't say anything. And he took out a knife and sliced up the uh, shoes and the hat in front of them. And according to one witness said he would do the same to the owner. Um, this put an entirely different cast uh, on the uh, proceedings. And of course, it also somewhat explained the bizarre 
beginning to the, uh, to the fight in which Benjamin had actually taken off his shoes and taken off his hat and put them someplace safe, the witnesses said, well, we think he did that because he was going to go grab Carlos's hat um, as a replacement for the one that Carlos had destroyed. So, um, so there was bad blood between these two men for some time. And in fact, uh, other uh, friends uh, that knew them had uh, previously tried to break up a previous fight between them. Now, did that mean that it was premeditation? That was part of the big debate uh, in the whole case. Um, because clearly on the Sunday that the stabbing occurred, Benjamin was the aggressor. He had started everything. Uh, and he was clearly uh, um, harming or hurting Juan Carlos during the fight. Um, but because there had been this previous bad blood and because also Juan Carlos lied about it um, in his testimony, it sort of cast a different uh, perspective over the whole case. And, and, and that became much more a point of contention as to whether this represented premeditation or whether it was, in fact, some sort of self-defense or manslaughter. Another point of contention in the case was that Juan Carlos was carrying a knife when his fight with Benjamin occurred, which could indicate premeditation. The defense attorney argued forcefully against this point. There was a general prohibition on carrying knives in St. Augustine, and if you look at how frequently people got stabbed in St. Augustine in the colonial period, there was a reason why the government officials did not want people carrying knives. Um, but, uh, but the defense lawyer, uh, Rivera, quite correctly said, uh, you know, this is not a heavily enforced regulation because people who carry knives as part of their professions, such as sailors who always had knives, or, you know, the accused who was a cobbler and who uses this knife in his work, um, should be allowed or at least expected to have these, these knives on them at times. And people should only be prohibited from carrying them if they've done something wrong in the past. Uh, and that all went into the, into the defense plea on mitigation. So, um, uh, so there was a great deal of contention over the whole fact that he had a knife on him and why he had a knife on him and whether it was innocent or whether he was carrying it for some malicious reason. The fact that Juan Carlos was defending his honor against a man accused of having an affair with his wife was considered as a mitigating factor in the crime. The testimony of some of the women in the case was called into question as they had ties to the victim. Interestingly, the woman at the heart of the dispute, Juan Carlos's wife, did not testify. Even with a vigorous defense, Juan Carlos was found guilty of the murder of Benjamin. Jim Cusick. The verdict was extremely harsh. Um... It was not the death sentence. Um, and I should say that when Henry White uh, uh, rendered a sentence, judges at this time were not required to explain why they gave the sentence they did. In fact, the law even discouraged them from explaining the rationale of their sentencing. Um, but his sentence was uh, that Carlos would have to endure 200 lashes and 10 years of uh, penal servitude, of forced labor servitude. Um, 200 lashes was close to being a death sentence at that time. Uh, some people survived it, uh, many did not. It wasn't a particularly unusual punishment. If you read accounts of the British Royal Navy at the time, uh, serious crimes in the Royal Navy often meted a punishment of 100 to 200 lashes. Um, but there was an added theatrical aspect to this. Um, which was that when Carlos was to be punished, he was to be led out under escort from the Castillo de Marcos, 
de San Marcos, where he was uh, imprisoned. And he was to be taken to the corners in town that were related to his crime. And at each corner, he was to receive 10 lashes. And at the scene of the crime, he was to receive 20. And then subsequent to that, he was to receive whatever other lashes they still had to deliver to make the total of 200. And he was also to have the knife he used um, hung around his neck during this time. I don't know what to make of that punishment, frankly. I'm trying to read other murder cases to see what punishments were like. Um, it's very difficult to find other murder cases in which a slave was the accused, so it's hard to find comparative data. But I can't help but think that the Governor White was trying to send some sort of message by making this into a very public uh, demonstration of punishment. Uh, this is 1800. Uh, it is the time of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, there is a great deal of fear uh, in the Caribbean and in the southern parts of uh, the United States about uh, violence within slave communities, about the potential for uprising. And I think what White was demonstrating or was saying was that there would be no tolerance whatever for violence within the black community at this time. I can't think of any other reason why the punishment would have been delivered in this way. If you go to St. Augustine today, you can visit the Castillo de San Marcos where Juan Carlos was imprisoned, walk down Avila Street and see some of the buildings associated with the case, and stop at the T-junction on Avila Street where the murder of Benjamin took place in 1800. Jim Cusick presented this case for the fourth annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture at the University of Central Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. And they tell me I was born with a range right in my hands A twinkle of adventure in my eyes But I swear I'm gonna die like a surveying man Leveling up that transit in the sky Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, by the mid-19th century, much of Florida's interior was still unmapped, right? 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821, but had been a Spanish possession for a few centuries prior to that. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that the Florida Peninsula was not uh, was entirely unmapped. We did have some representations, and, and some were fairly accurate. However, the interior of the state um, had not been thoroughly and, and fully explored. Uh, there were very few people living in the interior. Uh, so when Florida became a U.S. territory, it became obvious that uh, massive surveys needed to be conducted in order to parcel up this land for sale. Uh, and this is when the public land survey system comes into play. Now, this system really dates back to the end of the American Revolution uh, and is actually the brainchild of, of Thomas Jefferson. And it's a system that allows uh, for a standardized division of land throughout the United States. And it became very common throughout the western part of the uh, United States, but also uh, was also employed here in Florida after 1821. And essentially, this system uses two uh, grid lines, the a baseline and a principal meridian. Uh, the baseline is, is parallel to a latitudinal line, um, and it's established from some designated point. So in Florida, that's uh, Tallahassee. That's the state capital. Uh, it was designated in the 1820s, shortly after Tallahassee became the capital. And then we have the principal meridian, which is your north-south designation. Now, from that cross point, uh, you can then uh, create what are called townships. And townships are approximately six mile by six mile squares, uh, or 480 chains. And a chain length is is literally, it was a chain that was dragged across uh, the interior of Florida and was used as a measuring tool. So the so surveying teams would go out and start creating small blocks. Uh, these small blocks could then be um, subsectioned into 36 smaller sections, and then from there could be chopped up even further and further. So when you look at, uh, say, the legal description of a property that, that a person owns in Florida, you'll still see these same designations known as township and range designations. Now, uh, again, a, a property is a, a fraction of a section, but you'll still see it spelled out as a uh, section and township number. Now, you have here some really fascinating original surveys from the FHS collection. Yeah, that's right. Uh, first, I'll look at one of the earliest that we have in the collection. This actually dates from the British period. I mentioned before that uh, we did have maps of Florida, but they weren't that terribly accurate. Uh, this is a survey for a thousand acres of land that was designated for a major John Smalls, who was probably in some way uh, uh, involved with the, the British military, could have been in a Loyalist regiment. This is dated from 1773. And you can see here that there are points uh, that mark up the corners. In uh, each corner is actually uh, made out of a tree. So they found here a black oak, a white oak tree, a hickory tree, and those were the actual physical markers that, that uh, demarked the, the boundary. Uh, we have a stream cutting through, but there are also notes that, that show where uh, uh, good land might be for growing cane and indigo, which was important for uh, the British at this time period. Now remember, the division of land was really more important for economics than it was for, for anything else. It was about um, creating the opportunity to sell this property. So when Florida became a U.S. Territory, we moved into, again, the, uh, the use of the public land survey system. And this is one of the more complicated examples. Uh, this is uh, Township 66 South, Range 28 East. And if you were to look that up, you would find we're smack dab in the middle of the lower Florida Keys. So if you can imagine we have this grid system, well, what do you do if you're over water? You still have to maintain that those same uh, coordinates, those same township and range lines. So if you look at here, we have uh, Sugarloaf Key, 
this is part of uh, Torch Key, and as you can see, there's quite a bit of, of water. Now, this is uh, this actual survey was done in around the 1880s, uh, so there's very little settlement here. Um, but it's a it's a beautiful map, artistically speaking, because it shows a number of these township and range lines that are uh, very uh, uh, wonderfully done by a draftsman, clearly broken up um, based on the original surveys done by these teams who were traversing the, the backcountry of Florida at that time period. Um, here I want to look at one more. This is an interesting uh, uh, map showing Township uh, 54 South, Range 41 East. And again, if you were to look this up, you would see you right in the middle of Coconut Grove, Florida, uh, which is now one of the most densely populated regions in Florida, but at the time was uh, very sparsely populated. Uh, again, it shows the uh, Biscayne Bay. Uh, it actually names a few of the early landowners, but much of this property was completely uninhabited, but it was surveyed, which meant that someone actually walked all of these lines and created uh, the, uh, the section lines that we still use today. Well, how can people today research what the, the old surveys of their property look like? Well, today, uh, with the use of, of digital archives, uh, we can actually find a lot of these original maps online. So again, if you know, say for instance, you, you own property here in Florida, if you look up the legal description of that property, you can go to the U.S. Department of Interior's Bureau of Land Management website, where they house the General Land Office records. And the General Land Office was the federal department that handled all of these original federal surveys. And if you put in those legal coordinates, you set the meridian as the Tallahassee meridian, and click search, you can actually see uh, a, an original scan of the uh, survey that was done in the mid-19th century for your property. You can also find original homestead certificates. Uh, now again, a lot of this property was surveyed, but it had to be uh, now settled. Uh, so with the Armed Occupation Act and the Homestead Act of 1862, people were moving into Florida and they were uh, settling on these lands based on the original surveys. So you can find those certificates. You can also find uh, the, the beautifully done, again, very, uh, now we consider uh, a work of art. You can find those uh, maps online and can download them for free. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. And they tell me I was born with a range right in my hands, a twinkle of adventure in my eyes. But I swear I'm gonna die like a surveying up to transit in the sky. Yes, I'll be leveling up that transit in the sky. I'll level up that transit in the sky. This is Florida Frontiers. Portia Dossie is a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. She has this look at the Navy League. The Navy League was started by President Theodore Roosevelt, who had a strong naval heritage himself. Uh, he was Secretary of the Navy. He realized at the time that very few people really knew why did we need a Navy. People kind of instinctively know it during wartime, but what they don't realize is that you you know a Navy's not something you can just spin up out of nowhere. You gotta have shipyards, you have to have a merchant marine fleet to move goods back and forth, you have to have a Coast Guard, you have to have a Marine Corps. All those are elements of projecting naval force. So Roosevelt realized that we needed an organization that was dedicated to educating civilians. And he didn't really just mean the man on the street, he meant Congress. That was Andy Moeller, former president of the Central Florida Navy League. He spoke to us about the legacy of the U.S. Navy in Florida. Here he explains why Central Florida was important for the U.S. Navy. 
in Central Florida itself, I'll be a little bit broader than just Orlando, but if you think about uh, Sanford, Naval Air, Sanford was a huge Naval Air Station. In fact, that's why if you go to Sanford Airport today, you'll see an enormous runway there, much longer than you would normally see on a smaller civilian field. And there is an RA-5 Vigilante Museum piece out in front. That's because those nuclear bombers were stationed there. So they trained many of the Pacific Theater naval aviators that went on to fight Japan in World War II were trained at Naval Air Station Sanford. The Central Florida Navy League is currently raising money to erect a statue known as the Lone Sailor in Orlando. There are a dozen statues like this around the country, with ones in Jacksonville and Fort Lauderdale. Andy Moeller tells us about this iconic statue. The Lone Sailor statue itself is a rather iconic statue. The original one was done in Washington, D.C. At the, at the Navy Memorial, and all of the 14 statues are, the statue itself is, is similar because that's a copyrighted statue by the, by the sculptor Stanley Blyfield. The setting that the statue is in are all unique. Some of them, one in Fort Lauderdale, for example, is way different than the one in Bremerton, Washington, for example. Our particular memorial is, we think, very special because we claim, and we, it's not been refuted, it's the only one that's on historic ground. Our memorial itself is not only the lone sailor, but it's also uh, several other items, and it's actually the largest and com- most complex of the lone sailor memorials that are around. The other big factor, or the, the big design thing that we have that we're pretty proud of is a compass rose embedded into the memorial itself with a 40-foot flagpole, so it's a big, significant thing to see a a large flagpole and a flag flying. Uh, The Compass Rose has embedded inside of it the four services that the Navy League supports, the big Navy League, and our council supports not just the Navy, but what's called the Sea Services. So it's the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Merchant Marine, and the Coast Guard are all parts of the mission of the Navy League to support those four. The Lone Sailor won't be alone, but will have a companion in Orlando. Project Sparky, in a nutshell, is a unique sculpture that is in the process of being designed now to pay homage and complement the 188,444 women that graduated from the RTC Orlando. Sparky is a slang term for an electrician's mate. Uh, Turns out that there are women sailor statues, but they're typically chief petty officers. I know there's a really great one of a chief petty officer what we couldn't find was any statue that said, here's a woman recruit, as simple as that sounds. Uh, women recruits generally don't get a statue, right? They haven't done much yet, but it's still a significant thing to graduate from boot camp. In the case of this particular statue, we envision it as a woman who's achieved some distinction, a woman recruit. She didn't just graduate and march in rank. She actually achieved the distinction of a leadership position. And we will depict her as carrying a cutlass, which is a Navy enlisted sword, and that was a distinction only given to a very few people. That's going to make this statue very, very unique. And there's no other lone sailor of the 14 in the nation, no other lone sailor memorial will have the equivalent of having, you know, a lone sailor on one end and a, and a woman recruit or a counterpart on the other side. We will be working with the sculptor, uh, Don Reynolds, who's done many sculptures around town. In fact, a lot of them at UCF. He did the Charging Knight. He did the Veterans Memorial, 
He did Dr. Milliken's sculpture, and he is uh, in the process right now and nearly finished with George O'Leary's statue. So I got to see the clay of George O'Leary before it was completely done. You can learn more about the Lone Sailor statue by visiting the Central Florida Navy League online. That was Andy Moeller, and I am Portia Dossie, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. You can also find us online at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.